this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. Fantastic. Well, look, hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Anderson's TV. And today, my very special guest is Jennifer Batten. You are, I think you hold the world record of all the guests that I've ever had on here for being on stage during the world's most televised ever <laughs> music event ever with Michael Jackson on Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, so roughly speaking, approximately two thirds of the population of the entire planet should recognise you. <laughs> well, my hair was much taller back then. But it's brilliant to have you on. Um, Thanks for having me. And I know we're going to have fun and there's lots of cool stories and stuff like that. But let's go back, you know, and, and, and let's talk about life as a, you know, as a, as a, a you know, a, a, a child, Jennifer Batten and, and, and the whole like, where, where did the guitar obsession to kick in? Uh, there was two factors that got me into guitar. One was that my sister had a guitar and I didn't and I was jealous. It just pissed me right off. <laughs> so I told my parents the next uh, Christmas that's what I wanted. And it, it was pretty rare back then in the 60s to, to get an electric guitar for your first guitar. Yeah. But I did and I loved it. I, I remember strapping that thing on, walking through the neighborhood, couldn't play a thing, but I was doing the pose down. Look what I got, nanner, nanner. <laughs> and the other thing was the Beatles. Right. I was in this, uh, grew up in this little tiny town in upstate New York, and the whole town was Beatle obsessed. We were the trading cards, the boots, the everything. And I remember seeing them on TV when they hit the Ed Sullivan show. They first hit America. and. It, it was an obsession that lasted many years. Oh, that's amazing. And so, I mean, that's quite unusual, not not just to start with uh, your first guitar as an electric guitar, but also, you know, you've got a sister that's already playing the guitar. Yeah. Um, were your family, I mean, it sounds like your family must have been quite uh, unlike a lot of people of their generation, which would have, you know, been like, you know, the Beatles are evil, you know, it's just like, don't... <laughs> no, you know. no, not at all. No, my, my parents were pretty hip. My mother played piano, not professionally. Um, played in church. They, they went to church until I was born and got bored with the whole Sunday mm -hmm. idea. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> but um, my dad was really into jazz. Right. I don't know how he got into it, but he, he must have had a thousand LPs. Oh, and cool. as soon as he was home from work... Uh, and, and in New York, part of the house was the doctor's office, so, right. which meant just coming next door and putting the LP on. Um, so that was the musical backdrop of growing up. Fair enough. Yeah. But um, now, it's, it's obviously, you know, I think most, most people will relate to that kind of, you know, the, the, the getting their first guitar and standing in front of the mirror and kind of, you know, <laughs> sort of posing. But where did the... Um, you know, in terms of sort of a, a more formal education on, on the guitar, 
Um, how did that kind of evolve? You know, because again, um, you're obviously not self-taught as such, are you? you know, no. You've got so so. Where, where where did that go? Well, as soon as I got my first guitar, I started taking lessons mm -hmm. and learning how to read out of the very basic books, and. Um, I had different teachers throughout the years. The family moved to California when I was nine. I ended up with one teacher, and then we moved after a year while a house was being built and ended up with another teacher. So one teacher was into folk, finger-picking mm -hmm. kind of stuff. The next teacher was into the blues. next teacher into the rock. Yeah. The rock. <laughs> it's not yeah. like an old person talking about the rock and roll. <laughs> uh, so that, that was kind of cool to ha yeah. have that, the different... Um, genres coming at me but it wasn't really till I went to a musicians institute which at that time was GIT it was yeah. the third class they ever had and I was a class of 79 wow um, and that kicked my ass right because I was I think I was the only student out of 60 that had never done a gig before okay um, I, I remember when I was maybe 16 going to a local music shop way before the internet and I was so excited because they had this Rolodex system that, with musicians or, or index cards, like yeah. all these names of what they played, what instruments, what they were into. And I wrote down all this information and came home and my mother said, you're not going to go play with strangers at night. So <laughs> I never played in a band until I was 21. Oh, this is just insane because, I mean, we'll obviously get there, but I'm trying to picture this vibe of just going from literally having not played a gig to playing some of the craziest <laughs> tours in the world but um what was GIT like then I mean was it uh I, look, I'm 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 really trying to avoid asking you a question that you've probably asked a million times it's so cliche and I hate but I'm guessing there's like what 95% guys there 5% girls at GIT I was the only girl yeah so yeah and sadly doesn't feel like at higher education level it's that much different today which is depressing but what's I mean did it phase you did you did it drive you you know was it that was that like I'm gonna be better than all the guys or did it or was it just did it not matter I mean what, what was the what how did you well cope? I actually day one I found it shocking mm. that I was the only one um boy I'd have to put myself back in that brain uh, I don't think it really phased me that much because we were all just trying to be sponges and yeah. it was a really intense school, really yeah. intense. At that time there was three teachers and two of them were Bebop, Joe yeah. Diorio and Ron Eshte and uh, then Don Mock was the fusion side of things and uh, you know that was a long time before Ingve and all that so um, I wanted to be the next Pat Martino, yeah. Yeah. you know, signing up, you see these pictures on the wall of Joe Pass and Pat Martino and going, that's my future. Just give me one year in this school and I'll be there. <laughs> you know, really ignorant thinking. But that's, that's what it takes, you know, to, to have these little goals or, or huge goals in your mind and be going towards it. You know, a year later, maybe you're not there 10 years, maybe a lifetime you're not there, but all the different paths that you take along the way are where you're supposed to be. Um, where was the, because um, those old, that, that sort of GIT teaching methodology, I think colleges nowadays almost pull back slightly from that sort of hardcore just tuition and, and it's more about, you know, how to be a more rounded musician and understand about the contract you're going to sign. And all. Mm. But back in those days, it was just pure 
technique, wasn't it? Just learn to well, play the I, guitar. I will say that Howard Roberts wrote the curriculum mm -hmm. for it, and his idea for the school was to be a trade school so that you could actually make a living playing guitar when yeah. you get out the other side. So everybody had to go into classical, country, yeah. uh, learn to read, ear yeah. training. It, it, was, it was really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's like joining the Army. That's all I did. Yeah. You know, eat, dream, sleep, guitar, and do it the next day. I mean, that, that's another thing as well. I mean, you've got to... There's no, as far as I'm aware, anyway, there's no such thing as somebody that just naturally picks up a guitar and like, you know, they put minimal effort in and they're just amazing. Everyone that gets good, gets good because they eat, sleep, drink. You gotta spend time with it, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that there's, you know, do, do you think that there's still a place for that sort of form of tuition, you know, or do you think in a certain way, does it create, does it, does it remove your personality from the way you want to play and just go do it like this or do you you know do you still think that that was important part of your sort of formative you know did it did it create oh, you as the person very very important i i just look at it as um if you're a carpenter you learn how to use a saw yeah you, it we were given tools that we needed yeah. and probably one of the most important tools was learning how to transcribe yeah not that it's so important to be able to write it down although for me it was because i make a yeah. living doing many different things um but just you know the meat of music is learning how the things that you love happened yeah being able to dissect what they do is is that a half step bend or a minor third bend or what kind of vibrato all that kind of stuff yeah. so um it, it gave me the tools and i can honestly say i would not have gotten the gigs i got without yeah. having that foundation but you know, for your for your own personality to show up. For me, it, it I think it took a lot of time because mm. I, I learned tons and tons of solos. I learned all the solos on Blow by Blow and Wired, for starters. <laughs> um, and Joe Pass solos and Charlie Parker solos and just, you know, putting all this stuff in the gray matter. I thought right. I wanted to be a jazz player for years and then it just kind of morphed and eventually my personality emerged and yeah. is still emerging so, so you are uh, in your late teens at GIT, not gigged, or at least presumably, you know, maybe some stuff on campus or, you know, with the other people on the course. Um, where relatively quickly, you know, you're finished there and then things start to happen for you. So what, what can you tell us? <laughs> well, what, uh, where, where does it go from, from there? Uh, I started... Teaching, for okay. one, which is super valuable because mm -hmm. when you're sketchy about some things and you have to show it to somebody else, yeah. then you, you better nail it down. So, And, and, and I, I thought that was also really valuable in learning how to communicate. Because yeah. if you have somebody, you're doing a one-on-one -on -one session and they don't understand what you're saying, you've got to figure out a way that they can understand it. Yeah. So come up with different words or different ways to show them. I totally spaced on where we're going well because we're, we're sort of in my timeline we're sort of going from like you know 1980 you're oh, you're, you're, you're yeah, doing yeah. The, the learning thing. and you know i'm thinking like seven years later you're doing you're, you're playing like the, the biggest tours in the yeah. world with arguably the biggest artists since the beatles i just i'm you know my brain's going <laughs> how does that even happen you know yeah. it's just like well, well i still think that yeah it's, it's, um 
Well, I, I cut my teeth playing with a cover band mm -hmm. for, for years in San Diego. A uh, lot of different experiences, and everybody kept saying, you got to be in L.A. if you want to make it, Yeah. whatever make it <laughs> means. And so eventually I did move up very reluctantly because I had gone to school there, mm -hmm. and I knew that it is not a beautiful town. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> love L.A., but despite spending 20 years there, I... It's got some Way nice bits, people. hasn't it? But uh... yeah, <laughs> yeah, for you. <laughs> so, um, oh, once I got there, it, it was all about showcase bands, original yeah. bands, and I was in seven different bands. Okay. Which people go, wow, how could you manage that? But original bands play once a month, yeah. or maybe twice a month. So um, that was really valuable too. I had one band that was kind of like a Bruce Springsteen. There was an actor that wanted to be a rock and right. roll guy like a lot of them wanted to. And we played at this empty bar every Monday night <laughs> and he would pay us and he wanted a guitar solo in every song. Right. So that was, for me, that was great. And just a, a lot of different kinds of music, different experiences. Um, and, and I remember when I moved to LA, I was in the Musicians Union in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I needed to transfer and they had this rule that you had to go every Monday and sign in a book because the LA Musicians Union has the best financial deals. So you can't be from Iowa and say, oh yeah, I'm in there, so <laughs> give me my pension, you know. So I, I went and signed in and I would look at all the available gigs every week, this big book, and I'd see parties and bar mitzvahs and weddings and then it's like, eventually I went up to the guy at the counter and I said, this is, Hollywood where are the cool gigs at and he just kind of giggled and said it's it's word of mouth right and uh see I moved up in 84 and 87 um by then I was teaching at Musicians Institute okay and they had a referral service that they had started so people would call them for players and one of Michael Jackson's people called and said send me two people to audition so I was one of the, the lucky was your, winners. Your image during the Michael Jackson tour, I think, is you know, was very striking. Yeah. Was that something that was that just what you looked like? Oh no. Anyway, or was no. that very that was done for right? That was his idea. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, and I'm really thankful that he had a vision that he wasn't just looking for somebody that the look was already there because yeah. I just looked like a geek with glasses. <laughs> I and 20 years later. I saw my audition film and I go, oh my God, I was trying so hard to look cool and I so wasn't. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just amazing. So literally from cover bands playing to limited audiences and teaching, obviously teaching at a very high level, to auditioning for Michael Jackson and then, I mean, again, let me just, prior to the Michael Jackson tour, what was the biggest crowd that you think you played to? The biggest crowd was probably a thousand people and it was opening in this fusion band I was in for Jeff Lorber. Right. And I remember that gig very well. Of course, I was nervous as hell. And um, after the fact, somebody told me I wasn't mic'd. And I go, oh, thanks a pant load. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to What Can Happen Live. <laughs> oh, classic. But I mean, normally it was just little clubs. I mean, hundred people, I suppose. Yeah. I went from a hundred to fifty, sixty thousand in Tokyo. That's insane. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. And I mean, and he's obviously already a, a, a utter global megastar as well. So it's not even like you're kind of 
you know, oh, get yeah. a little bit of ch- time to sort of grow with it. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I don't know how often that ever happens again, but, you know, do you, can you think of, like, were, were there things that you can give as advice or just going, like, if you ever find yourself going from a band that plays to 100 people to being in, you know, the new Michael Jackson's band? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what was it, what freaked you out the most about the whole thing? Actually, the audition was fairly easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had asked the guy that called uh, what tunes I should learn for the audition, and he told me, I don't know, three or four songs, I don't remember. And um, I went in, and there was no band. So we didn't play those songs, and it was just me playing by myself. And because it was the Van Halen era, mm-hmm. you know, 1987, I think every band on Sunset Strip had a solo spot for the guitar player. Yeah. Where you do your own eruption. You know? <laughs> so I was pretty comfortable with that. And the only guidance I was given was to play some funky rhythm. So I came up with something and improvised. And then I started getting into more of a rock kind of solo. Um, I had already done three demo tracks with Michael Sambello, mm-hmm. who was in Stevie Wonder's band and wrote Maniac. Um, he was lived in the next town over. Right. Um, so one of those three that I had done was a, a Giant Steps tapping solo mm-hmm. that I worked out. So I did that. And then I had been playing the Beat It solo from my cover band. So I thought he might find that useful. <laughs> <laughs> and that bought me a house. 16 bars bought me a house. <laughs> That's insane. I, I mean, you must have... I don't even, I mean, you, yeah, it's impossible not to know how huge Michael Jackson was at that point. So you walk in to do the audition. Yeah. He's, what, there going? Oh, he wasn't there. Oh, so he's, right. Oh, so I he, would have so been tapping myself. So it's just an MD is there at that point, just going, right. And so you, he, someone else chose you to be Michael Jackson's No, no, it was player. Michael. Oh, he did? Yeah, it, one, the guy that had actually called me uh, was videotaping it. So he had, yeah. you know, back then the video cameras were yeah. huge. yeah. And there was a keyboard player, and it wasn't the MD, it, and that's all there was in the room. So I didn't tell anybody I auditioned. I just didn't want to jinx it. And, I don't blame you. Uh, once they called me to come in and start rehearsing it, I still didn't tell people, because they, they actually never told me I had the gig. It was just when I got the call that Michael was interested, they said, come down and rehearse with the band and see how it goes. And so day after day after week after week, I'm, uh, the, the first month was the band in one room by themselves singers dancers all in separate rooms and it wasn't until the second month that we mm. met michael but they still hadn't said you're hired <laughs> so i'm like subbing out all my work and uh, just mums the word just can't do that again if you can sub for me um and uh eventually i had a passport and a ticket to tokyo and we had heard that if if michael was happy with the music when he came in he'd be dancing and sure enough I'll, I'll never forget that vision ever it's just like burned into the gray matter uh his manager like this mafiosa guy you know frank delay with the cigar and the ponytail he comes in with michael and he started dancing right away and we're going oh, we're getting... is that that i mean taking i mean just remembering back to that you know i can see the like you know smile on your face and everything like that it's just a crazy it's yeah. one of those you know, you get to be one of that minuscule number of people on the planet, don't you? That just uh, something utterly amazing and life-changing happenings, and yeah. it's just like that's insane. Now, you you had that gig for ten years, I think, didn't you? I did, yeah. Three massive three tours. world tours. 
Uh, bad, dangerous, and history. Yeah. It's insane, isn't it? Are there? Is there any? I don't know. Just. I mean, there must be hundreds of moments that you that you remember. But is there like a standout? Like, what was what was it? You know, was there a? Did you get one particular solo where you got the big spotlight? Hundred thousand people go wild, or some crazy after show story, or? Oh, there's there's so many highlights. Too many. Um, well, the the very first gig mm. in Tokyo, at least I knew I didn't know anybody in the audience, so I didn't feel that <laughs> potential judgment. Um, but I remember the anxiety I felt during the day, just wondering how I would feel. Because I, I think everybody's experience where you're playing in your bedroom, you're just killing it, playing with tracks or playing alone and everything sounds great. And all of a sudden you're playing the same thing on a stage and it's like you can start shaking or your legs start yeah. shaking. And so I just didn't know what, what I would feel. And uh, because we had rehearsed so much, two months straight, mm -hmm. long hours every day, I hit the stage and it was super comfortable. Super tight, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was just, and because we rehearsed so much, the, the energy went into performing instead of like, oh, what's the first chord in the bridge? Ah, yeah. what's the next song? So that's that's my one takeaway when people say, what would you get from working with Mike? I go, the power of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. it, it, you just go over and over and over that stuff. And I hear people say, oh, I don't want to be over rehearsed, but I have never felt that way. I always feel if I have another shot at doing the song that I can do it better mm. and presumably it's not like any of the musicians in the band were bad were they? it's like every musician is right up there and it's like, yeah and I always think that's kind of that's one of those things when you you know when you get a, a group of super talented musicians you know magic really happens and it's just insane it did it did and they were really good people um it, it could have turned out differently because they knew I was a rookie. Mm. I mean, all these guys had resumes, <laughs> you name it. I mean, Greg Fellingaines started with Stevie Wonder when he was 18, yeah. I think, and Ricky Lawson had played with Whitney, and you, you name it, everybody but me. Oh, and the other guitar player was uh, John Clark. Um, we were we kind of bonded yeah. in our overwhelmedness. <laughs> oh, so it's, you mean the other guitar player who auditioned? So the two of you got the, the gig and neither of you had really had a big... Tour right. prior to that. Yeah. Amazing. I'm not even sure of John audition because he was okay. recommended by Paul Jackson. Right. He was doing sub sessions for mm -hmm. him. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it was a good, a good thing. And, and then okay, immediately you're then thrust into the spotlight mm. of um, the guitar player world. So, you know, yeah. I, I always kind of think, you know, that, that that's a the, the toughest audience ever is like the yeah. guitar clinic where it's just a hundred guitar players there and they're just like see what you got then you know like that yep. this is like but you really you know you've got you've got Ibanez deals and and um you know you're on the front covers of guitar magazines yeah. and it's just like this is just are you, are you just pinching yourself going <laughs> what is going on yeah I think uh a lot of us were the dancers as yeah. well you know, play, the dancers are dancing with the biggest dancer on earth. Yeah. So it was a similar thing with that. I still remember my first guitar magazine interview. I, I was super nervous and my teeth were chattering. And <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I think every guitar player that, that wants to be pro, you have the self-talk all the time. And some of the self-talk is going to be interviews. Because yeah. you read all these interviews with other people, and all of a sudden you're in the driver's seat, and you're going, oh, holy crap, this is getting real now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it took a bit to get used to. 
That's mad. I mean, was there any, you know, gear-wise during that time, were you, you know, were you kind of learning as you go along about the gear or had you prior to that, you know, in, you know, during your GIT stuff, had you kind of, did you really know what you wanted in terms of amps and guitars and pedals and stuff or was it, did you, you know, in, in the Michael Jackson setup, did you even get a lot of choice over that? Was it just like, no, this is the guitar you need to play because it looks right or... They said you can get anything you want for this tour and you don't have to pay for it till the end of the tour a year and a half later. Right. And at that point, it was discounted because it wasn't new. <laughs> so uh, at that time, the Bradshaw racks were the thing. Right. Steve Lukather was the yeah. king of the Bradshaw rack and uh, or controller. And I mean, it was before multi-effects. Right. And so prior to this, I had had pedals and I don't even remember what amp I had but all of a sudden I had two Boogie Mark 3s in a rack that were uh, uh, going into a strategy 400 I mean one was one whole boogie was just for clean the other one was just for dirt uh, one whole rack space for reverb another for chorus another for delay and a couple envelope filter pedals. And just some for lights, just to literally light up, and just, yes. just to do nothing but to look like a... We used to, I used to sell those. It's, I mean, this is pretty much... <laughs> I do remember when that whole rack thing was so crazy. And we would sell um, spectrum analyzers. So they're, they're just like... They serve a purpose if you're like a sound engineer. Right. They serve no purpose for it, and they would just have them just to be the lights in the rack. Uh, I missed out on that one. <laughs> it's missed out. Like, and like you say, people with racks like this of gear, and oh, now you, you know, people have pedals like this that do three times as much. It know, took just... three guys to lift that thing. It was the size of a refrigerator. <laughs> and, and trial by fire, all of a sudden I was had all these manuals. It's not just stepping on a pedal. It's like getting in and programming. Ah, it was that part was pretty overwhelming in the beginning. And and how did what was it about? Because you again you were. Um, I just remember that the yellow Ibanez, you know, and that that's my sort of enduring memory of. Did you, was that like? Am I just thinking of one tour? Or did you have that for multiple tours? Or presumably you had a few of those. But I always remember you just having this loud. Maybe it wasn't even yellow. This loud coloured Ibanez guitar. It was. I think it was yellow. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was. I had several Ibanez that I used uh, from the Bad Tour to the Dangerous Tour, mm -hmm. and then I switched to Washburn on the um, on the History Tour because all the necks kept warping on the Ibanez. <laughs> you know, those thin necks. Yeah. I, I remember one guitar. I just loved it. The neck was so awesome, and I had it in my garage in L.A. And it's called the Santa Ana Winds. The desert winds come in, and I went out to the studio the next day, and it was. Oh. Gone, just <laughs> damn it. Yeah, but, oh, that's, that's that's crazy. I, I mean, and uh, would you sort of I, again? I'm I'm trying to think when you're on, you know, that band. Probably you, more so than any of the other musicians in there, were were really front and center yep. of, as part of the show. I mean, did you, you know, did you feel like you had to? Did you learn to dance, or was it all very just? <laughs> I, I, I'm oh, trying to. I mean, I don't. That's good. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember seeing any where I can think. Oh yeah, you 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 got some steps. But there was loads of stuff where you and Michael were kind of. You know, there's you're you're yeah. very much kind of doing this like toing and throwing kind of vibe. You know, yeah. was that all just spontaneous or again no. is that? Oh, literally, that's no. Well, well there was a stage choreographer. Yeah. So during this part in black and white, you go over and jump on top of the fan, and all this crap would come in, in my contacts. <laughs> <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> the dangers of rock and roll. Um, but I, I was really lucky in that, well, it depended what tour, but on, on the dangerous tour, I kind of got a free-for-all on a song called Working Day and Night. At the end, he'd just let me go off, and we'd just kind of feed off each other. And when he'd start to go towards the middle of the stage and do this big jump, I'd wrap it up. And yeah. so that was really fun. And it was all his idea to make me stand out. Yeah. The hair, the look, the everything was his idea. Um, and I've seen pictures that, you know, the way the lighting is, obviously a spotlight's going to be on Michael, but then you'd see my hair. <laughs> Because it's white and it would pick up the light. <laughs> it's it's definitely definitely it's one of the, you know whatever you know what it, whatever it is that that um, was about that tour. You know, again, I'm pretty sure that you could go and ask, you know, survey a hundred people and go, you know, name me the band that were in the you know, that did the the, the the whichever you know dangerous tour, whichever yeah. one it is. And I bet you your name is the one that most people will go, oh, yeah, definitely. Jennifer Batten was in that band. And then it'd be like, well, I can't remember who the rest of them were kind of thing. Well, a lot of people just know me as the girl with the hair. Close enough. Not such a bad thing, is it? (laughs) No. So so you've done three insane world tours. Mm. Life is good. You've bought a house and, you know, everything, things are good. And then that comes to an end. Um... How did that sort of feel? I mean, is it just like, did you have like sort of, oh, here's my diary and none of the pages are filled in or, or did you have loads of other stuff that you wanted to go and do? Actually, no, before we do that, of course, because you had two um, albums that came out uh, yeah. in that period as well, really, you know, showing off your virtuoso guitar skills and very much in keeping with the types of albums that were coming out yeah. at that time from, you know, Steve Vai and Satriani and all the other kind of great virtuoso guitar players even the artwork and stuff is kind of yeah. is of a vibe isn't it <laughs> um so was that um I, but I, you know to, how much fun you know was that just stuff you used to do in between the tours just to dive into a studio record some stuff i mean what, what do you remember of that yeah um well after the bad tour uh, i just focused on my own career and mm-hmm. the the demos i had started with with michael Sambello, i went back and completed that and that, it took years because you know, he would get these big budget things and then I would get the two o'clock in the morning times every <laughs> once in a while. So it took a long time to finish. And uh, the timing was amazing because when it was finally finished and manufactured, he called me for another tour. So I go, right. it's unbelievable because now I have the money to pay a publicist and he's paying the flights and all the travel to get to all these different cities. So that worked out really well. And the same thing happened again for the history tour had no idea when he was going to go out, what he was doing, and he called me again for that, and that, then I had finished uh, the Momentum record. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, if I wasn't on his tour, I was trying to get my thing off the ground and writing tunes and doing some teaching between. Have, have you seen a resurgence of any of that recently? Because it, it's that sort of the virtuoso thing. I think, you know, it was obviously huge in the 80s, and then it kind of, you know... Um, Britpop and grunge kind of killed it off, yeah. really, didn't it? Uh, uh, and but it definitely feels like in the last few years it's become cool and acceptable again to sort hmm. of go. Oh, I'm going to listen to some virtuoso guitar music, but or you know, you, are you seeing that sort of interest peak back, or is it tough to tell? I'm kind of in my own clueless bubble. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on out there. <laughs> I, I've been lucky enough to 
be able to keep working. Yeah. And, and I do a multimedia show that you'll see tonight. Yeah. So um, do a lot of originals in that. And I seem to get work. And well, good for you. Well, look, so let's let's get back on. So the the, yeah. the, the, the Michael Jackson tour finishes. And then, of course, um, the you go from probably the king of pop to, I guess, the just the king of guitar, basically. Yeah, that's pretty magical. phones you and says, uh, hello, what, it's Jeff Beck here. <laughs> Do you want to come and work with me for a <laughs> bit? Or how does that work? Well, um, here's how that worked. There was a, a, a keyboard player, Rory Kaplan, on the Bad Tour that had done some teching for Jeff when he was with Jan Hammer. Yeah. And... He knew that I was a freak for Jeff Beck, and I had oh, learned all his solos and stuff. And he goes, oh, I'll hook you guys up. Well, he didn't do it! <laughs> Bastard! So when the Dangerous Tour came along, I go, okay, I know we're going to England, and I know Jeff lives there. How hard can it be? <laughs> it's a small island. <laughs> yeah. Probably smaller than the whole of California, so he, he must be there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So actually, every, every country that we went to, after the shows, the Sony reps would be around, and... I'd, I'd ask him, does anybody have a clue how to get a hold of Jeff Beck, invite him to a show? And eventually, Sony UK came up with it, invited him to a show, VIP parking and everything. And there's two opening acts that went on, and then Michael canceled. I was devastated. I thought, oh, God, of all the nights to cancel. Uh, so it turns out Jeff had showed up late and was turned away at the gate, and I called him the next day and said, you know, I don't know when or if they're going to make up the show, but can I meet you anyway? And he was very generous. Um, I went to the studio. He was recording his Rockabilly record mm -hmm. at that time and got to hang out for a bit and, uh, you know, bucket list. I gave him a CD thinking he'll probably never listen to it, but I made that connection. Yeah. And I, I thought I'd never see him again. And, and a couple of months later, he called me up. He said, I'd finally had a chance to listen to your record properly and let's do one together. And I just <laughs> peed myself, of course. <laughs> this is like, is this really Jeff Beck? This is like one of my friends doing a bad Nigel Tufnell accent and, uh, and winding me up. It really, oh, that's mad. Yeah, that, that was so unexpected. That, and that's a different pressure, presumably, because you're oh, yeah. now going from... Uh, I guess a tour where it's the the stage production is the yeah. is the sort of the overwhelming like awe of that to just this is going to be musically you know it's like if I'm not on my A game yes it was daunting for sure it's yeah you know yeah so what, and honestly it was from from that call to when it actually happened was five years right and I would see him on different tours and he'd go we're going to do this thing and I thought well. I know what it's like to be inspired in the moment, and yeah. then you move on to other things. I thought, you don't have to say that. It's just, you know, just to be asked was enough. Yeah. Eventually, he called up and said, I've got this tour of Italy. Come on. I had never played with him. I thought, that's having a lot of faith. And at that, by then, I had two records out and gave him the other record. Uh, and so I forced an audition on myself yeah. just to make sure he wasn't nuts. And I, I had a session in Italy, and booked it to London to meet with him and I'd learned most of the guitar shop record and just played it in his presence just to put that audition in my mind like that yep. happened <laughs> yep. and that's another one I didn't tell anybody that I was up for that gig because that would super suck if it didn't work out um, next thing I know I'm playing in his band and actually the weird thing he invited me to New York and at that time the band was going to be 2011 Terry Bozio 
you know, pretty daunting, right? Yeah. And uh, so I walk in and there's no keyboard player and I'm going, oh man, this, yeah. he was totally happy to have me take that role. And I thought, this ain't going to work. Uh, I mean, just the sounds alone. Mm. From 30 years of Max Middleton, Jan yeah. Hammer, and Tony Hymas. And so about that time, I ended up going to a Frankfurt show and walking away with um, what was the fastest triggering synth at that time called mm. Axon. Mm -hmm. And so I got that and got into programming hell. And So you um, did the... Because when I... We were talking before we started, I, 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 I saw... Um, Jeff Beckett, Ronnie Scott's like that, you know, I don't know if I'm luckiest person alive really because that, that, there was two or three magical nights that he did and mm. it's such a tiny venue so only a few hundred people could have seen that. But that was the bit that I, I was listening to Jeff Beck playing these parts and just going, how do you get that sound? And, you know, it's like, it's just unique and fat and everything and then of course i realized this the keyboard players double tracking everything that he's playing with kind of this sort of synthy uh, saw kind of pad like sound yeah. it wasn't young it um i mean like that right sorry yeah yeah um you'll know the name i can't remember the keyboard player's name in that band but it was the jason was robello the, well that's it yeah. jason robello so what a band that was yeah but and it's when you realize that and it and it's so tight because yeah. it's like you know, it's not that it literally did take me two or three songs to realize that there was a keyboard player tracking all the parts that Jeff Peck was playing. And I'm hmm. just thinking, but so was your job in that band to track kind of double to play the keyboard parts as he always was your job more? No, it was more pads, more just like yeah. synthy swell kind of sounds underneath. Yeah, I think I'd say probably 75, 80 percent mm. was doing synth and the rest was guitar. That must have been quite because that was back in the, you know, back at a time where the synth guitar tech was relatively, uh, relatively new, and as you say, didn't hadn't really resolved all it the tracking was, issues. And I, I actually, the Axon wasn't working out. I mean, the tracking was great, but the sounds in the Axon I didn't like, so mm -hmm. I got uh, Roland 1080s for mm -hmm. sounds, and the two companies talking to each other was. I'd be playing a C chord and getting a sharp nine flat five coming out. Yeah. <laughs> you know well, what I, was? I always found it was, you know, you, there's so many harmonics that I think when you're playing guitar naturally yeah. that you either don't notice or they sound nice anyway within the thing. But I always know when I we would, when you play synth stuff, sometimes yeah. that harmonic would just trigger it and you'd be just like, <laughs> it's like, well, that's not cool. I think a week before we went out, I switched to all rolling gear and right. it was slower, but it was way more reliable. Right. So... It was pretty much all pads. There were a few things like um, a tune, I think it was Savoy, where there's a horn section. Mm -hmm. I had to be so on top of the beat for mm -hmm. that. It was super uncomfortable. Oh, you mean you're playing it slightly in front of the beat just so that you're allowing the, the tracking time yeah. so that when the sound comes out, it's on the beat. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a tough gig, that one. <laughs> it, it was, and a lot of tap dancing, man, I, because I, I had a rack full of But you learned all that craziness. from the Michael Jackson tour, didn't you? Actual tap <laughs> I'm oh, we, we didn't finish the dancing thing. Yeah, it's it's uh, hilarious. I, I I can't I can't dance, but of course I can't dance and play because I can't dance. And oh my, there was some some funny times where um, we had we had this lineup in working day and night where we were supposed to do certain things with our shoulders and then turn around and all this crap. And I was right in front of Michael. So, of course, he's seeing my every move, and the, the next morning I get a, a word from one of the dancers saying, uh, Michael wants me to help you. 
You know, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he know I'm hopeless? <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, you know, I, I know we're scatting all over the place now, but that's when yeah. you see um, like Bruno Mars band. Yeah. And like all the, the all the musicians are all part of the dance routines, and they're all brilliant as yeah. well. And you just go, it's a wicked show to that's watch. That's a whole that, other skill. It? So cool. Yeah. So cool. Anyway, look back yeah. to yeah. Jeff Beck and crazy <laughs> stuff like that. So. And the Jeff Beck thing turned out to be quite a long-term... Well, I say long-term. It was two or three years, wasn't it? That's that long did? for him. Yeah, that's what <laughs> yeah. I mean. It wasn't like a, like a one-month you know one month thing, was it? So was two tours, two CDs. Yeah. Amazing. So where are you... You know, it, is there anything left? You know, what, you know my, uh, can I play in the biggest pop stars band in the world? Yes. Can I play in the best guitar players band in the world? Yes. Well, what... What do you do? You just retire after that and just go, there's nothing left to, to fulfill, you know, where, where do you well, go? Well, the, the thing after that that I was focused on was my own music, how mm-hmm. to get it out there. I mean, by, I think by that time I might have had three albums out or was mm-hmm. working on the, the third album. Well, no, the third album was mostly stuff I wrote for Jeff when I was in his band and the stuff that didn't make his album was my right. next record. Okay. And then I got into making videos as well. I wanted to do this multimedia show. Mm-hmm. So I bought a motorhome and trekked around America many, many thousands of miles doing a solo show. Um, because I, I was starting to think, you know, I, I need to take a band and take it out on the road, but I don't like being a leader. I, I've done that where, yeah. you know, somebody shows up not knowing the tunes or canceling <laughs> and all the human problems that can happen. Yeah. And uh, I know so many players like Adrian Legg will tour alone. Khaki King was doing a solo thing for a long time. And I go, there's got to be a way I can go out solo, at least in the beginning. Mm, mm. So that's when I came up with the film show. And I've been doing that about 10 years now. And, and a lot of other things. It's, strangely, for the first time in a long time, I don't really have a goal. Yeah. I'm just going with the wind. It's nice, though, isn't it? Just to sort of, yeah, you know. Not so much just... angst. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think it's important. You can, you know, just just enjoy it for what it is. Play, yeah. you know, enjoy the. I, you know, that's for me. I think you know, I, I, there are moments in in life where you do just pick the guitar up and you just go, "You are my friend, and I'm mm. just happy to be with you." And I don't really, you know, it's like, you know, and then you just, go, I'm so glad I, you know, learned to play a few chords on this thing because it's, you know, it's nice, isn't it, to just get back to that. Why did you, you know, the reason why you learned to play in the first place is because you love the, yeah. the noise. Yeah, you're so makes, right you about know. that because it's, it's so easy to get burnt out when you're just beat up from mm. too much travel, when it's unbalanced. Uh, I mean, there have been periods of time where I just get off the road and I don't pick it up for a month. Mm. I'm just off into other things, making steampunk art or <laughs> whatever. Uh, and, th- and that's actually really healthy because it's, when you get back to it, it's a lot more fun. I mean, mentally, maybe not physically for a minute. But, um, yeah. So I, I'm, I, I think I'm going to, I, I want to do a little bit of a, a gear, a gear nerdy sort of focus yeah. on this. Maybe we should talk about the steampunk thing as well, although that's <laughs> not, you know, that, that's just cool, not guitar-y. But so gear-wise, you have obviously honed your rig down from this like Bradshaw, <laughs> you know, need a removal van to get from one yeah. venue to the next to just about the most portable that it can possibly be. Is that, are you just sort of, are you just over it now in the sense of like, you're just over the four by 12 need everything. And you're just going, you know what, if it sounds fine and I'm plugged in in two minutes or where, where, where are you kind of at? After the hernia surgery, <laughs> 
I see. <laughs> yeah. I am forever dreaming of things that are lighter and more compact. Yeah. And, you know, I know one day there will be great sounds in an iPhone and that's all I'll need to go direct. Not quite there yet. But um, a couple of years ago, I ended up at Thomas Blug's house. Yes, the lovely Thomas. Uh, Crazy Thomas. So, yeah, tell us about the, and, you know, how long you've been using the blue one and, and, and what it is you like about it. Uh, he told me I'm his first customer. Right. Okay. Yeah, because when I went to his house, he had just finished the prototype and he had me plug in right away. And I go, oh, my Lord, when can I get one? And it was torture. Yeah. Waiting and waiting and waiting. I want it. I want it. And meanwhile, I'd be going on a plane and just breaking my back and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so this thing's less than three pounds. It's essentially a, a hundred watt vintage Marshall with four channels, MIDI capable um, and programmable. And I have it set up now for for my three favorite sounds. Yeah, which would be it's a clean. one of my faves That's cool I could do an entire yoga record with that <laughs> and then add the whammy pedal breathe deeply I just did a gong boom that's it <laughs> and then we'll, we'll sell that as a yoga like a three-second yoga thing yeah yeah um and then what you've got like a couple of crunchy sounds or yeah it's, it's a it, it's it's almost I think people see that and they just go, oh, it's too small. I won't like it. I'm not even going to try it. But it, it, is, yeah. it is quite weird, isn't it? It's like it is 100 watts. There is a valve in it. So it's got that kind of slightly chewy, organic kind of vibe yeah. that you want. And it's super compact and it does heaps of stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not it's, to like. It's revolutionary. So you, you really need to educate people. And I've, I've done clinics uh, for other gear where I'm, I'm talking about this. And I say just what I said. It's a 100 watt head. It's... Yeah. You know, pre and power amp. And then after the clinic, people go, so it's just a preamp, right? Or it's an expensive pedal. Yeah. I go, it's a head. Yeah. It's a full on head. And if so, you want to talk to someone about 100 watt Marshall heads, I think Thomas probably has as big a collection of those as anyone I know in the world. So it's not like he designed that having not really known yeah. his house is just like a shrine to. Big Marshall amps. So. And pedals. And, yeah. All so. That's his carpet. It's just pedals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, thankfully, there are people with patients that are so interested in tearing things apart and yeah. figuring out what they're about and how to make it different and better and smaller. And because he's such a great guitar player, he knows what guitar players want. Yeah. As opposed to some companies, which I won't name have engineers yeah. that are brilliant engineers and they come up with these ideas and I, I read the ad and I go, oh, I have to have this. And then I get it and go, that sucks. I just throw <laughs> it to eBay. So, so it's very different when you got a great player um, tweaking out this thing. Uh, but you, and then the, now obviously if you, you know, you're using effects as part of your rig, you know, yeah. you, sort of, you, had, you got the, 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 particularly the swell sounds and the whammy and you got some, you got some quite nice compressed sounds and stuff like that. What's what's the the you know the, using a pretty affordable kind of Digitech thing? Is that is that something you really just take out for clinics, or is that has that been part of your rig for I've a while? I've been using it because whatever I take has to fit in my suitcase, mm -hmm. and every year it seems like you get less and less weight you're able to take. Yeah. In fact, I know going home I'm going to have to pay excess luggage just for this. 
Having but, said that, though, I did lift your red suitcase up the stairs, and I'm not surprised you need excess you yeah. know, weight for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I've been with Digitech for maybe 25 years or, really? or so. Long time. Uh, since they, they came up with the Whammy. I was one of the first Whammy customers and fell yeah, in love with that. For sure. Uh, so I've been using this for a couple of years, toss it in the suitcase, and have different gigs programmed in it. And I like a lot of the sounds... I'm looking at the Boss 1000 now. Yeah, yeah, GT1000. Number one, because it has MIDI, and for some reason Digitech failed to put MIDI in this. Oh. So, you know, if I have MIDI, I can step on one button and mm. it'll change my amp channel. Now I'm doing too much tap dancing, and in fact, a lot of times when I want to go to a clean sound, I'll just use the neck pickup and roll off. Yeah. Because it's less work than doing all the tap dancing. So, um, I don't know what to do. It's almost like decide what Digitech haven't really made a splash in the in the multi-effects format for for ages have they it's almost like they've no, I don't they know, gave up on sort it sort of given up haven't they they do the individual yeah. pedal but yeah the gt1000 or a, a line six helix or something like that would be perfect to use with the helix is 15 pounds that is not going in my suitcase you've got no offense the, line six. No, no no there's the helix effects yeah which is the, like the it's the cut down version of the helix I with no it. amp modeling Oh, okay. Yeah, but, but once you put an expression pedal in it and right. a volume pedal, it's going to weigh the exact same as yeah. the GT. It's, I, I think it's fascinating now that professional touring guitar players, you know, and you're, you know, you are absolutely not in the minority here. Professional touring guitar players, they're just going before I've even plugged something in. Is it small, convenient? Yeah. Is it, you know, and it's. It's amazing now, isn't it? They're really, nobody's obsessed anymore with, you know, Marshall 4x12s or anything like that. It's like, yep, if I can have a little box like this and it makes the sounds that I want it to make, sign me up. You know, yeah. It's like, well, unless it's a big money tour, unless mm. Michael Jackson's going to haul a rack around the world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or Jeff. I mean, I'd, I feel so bad for him. I know the money he put out carting all my crap around the world, all the rack of synth gear. Now I'm using the Fishman Triple Play at MacBook Air. That's yeah. all you'd need. <laughs> you know? Sorry, Jeff. Well, that's fair enough. So, and let's, let's have a look at the guitar because it's uh, obviously a, um, at its heart a, a, a washband parallax, which I must admit when I first saw these, I thought that the... the neck because the, the cutaways off of the old Nuno Betancourt model isn't yeah. it like that which is super cool you know I, I had seen Nuno's guitars forever and didn't realize what this was yeah it was a uh, the Stevens cutaway which is a very very different design mm. and uh, so you get way more back of the neck material up here that makes it super easy to get up to the very last fret yeah without hurting yourself yeah uh, and, and then you, so you, so you've taken that as the sort of the basic guitar. Yeah. But you've gone down the, uh, so you've got the Fishman. Is that the Fluence or yeah. the? Yeah. So you've got a Fluence set. I in got there. the the modern here, and this is from their Stratocaster set. Right. But because it's twenty four fret, it doesn't have the the Strat spacing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a bit different. Floyd Rose one thousand, and I've the last uh, Washburn that I had, which was my own model, the JB one hundred. Um, had a Gibson scale, mm -hmm. and I just didn't want to switch at this age. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is a short scale neck, which is custom. Right. So you're on the, the, the well. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's there's a huge difference if you if you've played everything on a 24 and three quarter inch scale, and then all of a sudden it's like you, you know 
Ow. Yeah, please, <laughs> please everything. Every bend now is noticeably more effort to go yeah. in to make the same. Yeah, I totally understand it. So what Washburn basically just customised a, a parallax for you to, to, to just take the, the, um, the scale length down a bit. That's cool. Yeah, I, I actually have three of, of these, and I have uh, different pickups in each one. I have one that has the Fishman triple play built in, mm -hmm. so uh, I don't have to stick the external one in. Yeah. Um, this one, this is a, the frame for the yeah. triple plate hex pickup, and then the, the controller comes over here. Regular five-way switcher, very basic um, volume tone. This is my string damper. It's a great idea. And uh, the before and after, why I use it. Um, I first started using it for, for tapping. Right. Um, Cleaner, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a quite an elegant. I know uh, a lot of players like Guthrie and stuff like that just put like a hairband around the uh, thing. I don't that's, know how that's they quite, do it. It's quite an elegant sort of solution, your one, isn't it? Or not? It's, it's like you can definitely see it's a little bit more muted, maybe, than just using a hairband. Yeah, it's got it's got more uh, width. width. Well, uh, so I think though now we need to just spend two minutes talking about steampunk. Yeah. Because obviously you've <laughs> kind of steampunked the neck a little bit, haven't yeah, you? Yeah. With, with uh, you're saying these are just stickers that are put on, which is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it's a, a new company but, called Neck Illusions. So come on, what what else could we do to that guitar to oh, fully? What what would what would you do <laughs> if, if we were going to properly steampunk this out? What what would you do? Uh, actually, because of weight, I wouldn't do a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it was an airbrush design on top. If every extra bit that you could put on though was made of some special weightless material, yeah. what, what would we do? Oh, I'd have all kinds of gears. Uh, there's, you can probably Google 3D printed steampunk guitar. Really? There's one out there that has working gears with a piston or something that goes this way and the gears are you know, kind of silly. I mean, it's That's nothing to do with cool, music, though. but it just looks cool. But I, I steampunked out my strap instead. Yeah. Oh, I like In that. In fact, I made another one that I, I have uh, miniature copper tubes that are just going every which way. It's, it's just fun. I, and I can't tell you how I got into it. It's just I woke up one day and I go, steampunk. And I started looking at images and making fantasy airships and just going off in this wacky world. Well, I think that's the challenge for, for, for Thomas and Washburn and, and Digitech and anyone else. They need to make you some sort of complete <laughs> steampunk uh, you know, so you just open, you open some sort of steampunk style case and yeah. it rises Steam on comes yeah, out. Steam, yeah. and every, just change every look. Actually, it. I think it would be great if every preset there was a puff of steam that would come out. That's a brilliant Somebody idea. work on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's been a joy uh, to, to have you over. I'm super looking forward to seeing your show tonight. Great. Um, you've got... Uh, other dates that you're doing in the UK, you're saying you, you, you still do like a Michael Jackson tribute band kind of thing, and you've got obviously got your own stuff going on. Are you still doing? Do you do any teaching stuff still, or is it, is it... I do some Skype lessons when I'm yeah. home, but my schedule's so whacked, it's it's hard to keep anybody for any length of time. Well, where, where, where can if, if anybody wants to just find out more, is the be, where's the best place to go? Ah, well, the best place would be I, I do videos for TrueFire.com. Okay, yeah. So I've got three courses. I've got a a chordal course and a rock soloing course and then I have one on intervallic playing yep. wide intervallic jumps and working on a, a few more for them 
So you can download those. Well, I'll find the link for that and put it in the description below. And presumably, um, jenniferbatten.com exists, does it? It does. There yes. we are. That would be the other one to go to then. Oh, well, look, it's been a pleasure. Um, hope you guys have enjoyed it. I certainly have. Um, good luck with everything. Whatever else is happening Thanks in your life. Me. I'm very jealous of, you know, you, you have next to nothing by the sounds of things on your bucket list left to do. Um, <laughs> you know, hopefully one day I'll be able to say the same. But, uh, yes, thank you very much for coming in, and thank you guys for watching. Um, I'm proud to have been here with your <laughs> the famous Anderton's backdrop. Yes, we shall add you to our Hall of Fame. That's I've seen awesome. many videos from here, so it's cool to see it from the inside. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you yep. very much. Right, see you later, guys. Thanks a lot. Take it easy. for listening to our latest podcast if you enjoyed it hit that subscribe button see you next time